Okay, I'm pleased to welcome Andrew Petty. We're going to be talking about his work with What on Earth Books and Britannica Books today. And our main conversation is going to be about design. So first of all, a big welcome to you, Andrew. Uh, Thank you, Nikki. I'd like to start by asking you about your journey into children's books. I'm fascinated by the routes that people take to Mm. coming into children's books. Yes, I'm something of a late arrival. So I spent most of my career, 20 or so years, working in newspapers and magazines. Actually, my role was often as an editor, say a magazine editor, where you were both commissioning the articles and thinking up the ideas, but also working on the design in terms of what's going to be on the cover, how are we going to lay the issue out. I worked at the Telegraph, the arts and culture editor, for about five or 10 years. That was my background. So I think the seeds of what I'm doing now in children's publishing were still there. It's that kind of curiosity about the world, this love of making things clear to people, and particularly in the daily newspaper. You've got to grab people. You've got to grab their attention. You've got to make them care. You've got to get them engaged in your story. And visuals, images, and design are probably the first way you do that. Now, over the last few years, working with What on Earth books, Britannica books on children's nonfiction, It's the same skills. You're trying to engage the younger audience. And they've got a huge thirst for information. So it's a great readership. (laughs) But also, of course, they're younger. They have fewer points of reference. And so that clarity and also I think that engagement is almost they're a kind of tougher audience because they've got a million distractions. So, yeah, I do feel in a way that all of the skills, both the visual design and commissioning and editing, which is all about presenting information to readers in a way that they're going to engage with. That was a really good preparation to then going into children's nonfiction. Would it be true to say that working on something like the Telegraph, for instance, there must already be a house style in place. But when you're starting a new list or coming to a young list like this, you must have more control over what the look and feel of a product's going to be. Yes, that is a really good point. And it's both more challenging and difficult. And yes, more creative and exciting. So you're right, a well-established newspaper in the Telegraph, 150 years old. So there's a whole design aesthetic, a series of fonts, a look and a feel. It was interesting working in redesigns. How do you update that and keep it modern and refresh it without losing its core design values? That was interesting. But you're right, coming to a new book, it's a brand new book, a brand new concept. You might have brand new illustrators that you haven't worked with before. A new concept for the book is really exciting because all of those decisions, right down to the point size and the font you're going to choose and the color scheme and then which illustrator or combination of illustrators, how are you going to use photography? All of those things you're deciding from scratch. In fact, I've just been working with the same team with What on Earth and Britannica on a new, very exciting children's nonfiction magazine called Britannica Magazine. But then we have just finished the introductory issue. And that was exactly what you just described. We had 52 pages to fill of a nonfiction magazine for children aged seven plus. And it was just a completely blank page. And it was quite scary, but also really thrilling because every design decision about the whole issue and how it would be organised and presented we had to make from a blank slate. It's just an evolution. You can't sit down at the beginning and flat plan the issue. Took us six weeks probably. And the magazine at the end of those six weeks looked very different from week one. But you just have to go through the creative evolution, don't you? Mm. To work out what it is that feels right. Tell us about some of the other projects that you've worked on with What on Earth and Britannica. The biggest one of last year was a new book called Listified 
The subtitle is Britannica's 300 List That Will Blow Your Mind. So it's nonfiction. It's amazing lists about the universe, all factual. And the job is, again, tied to my journalism career because I felt the brief was for me and as the editor and writer and overseer of the book to be like a kind of investigative journalist, but for children. So I thought I'm going to go around the universe, as it were, and ask the questions that, say, my nine-year-old daughter May would ask. I remember one example was we were having a conversation about when you see astronauts jumping on the moon, they can jump quite high, three or four metres. Um, and my daughter May loved this. And so she said, oh, that's interesting. But how high can you jump on other planets? And I thought, oh, that's a good question. So I went off and researched that. And I found out, actually, one of the lists is how high you could jump in the air if you were standing on all the different planets. In fact, there's a moon of Saturn called Enceladus where you could jump um, about 42 metres up in the air. You'd be up in the air for over a minute and, and came down. So that was one of the 300 lists. So we have how long it would take you to drive through space to the moon in a car, 15 things that would happen to you if you fell into a black hole. There's lists about dinosaurs and animals. And all the things that kids that age are interested in, I think lists in terms of arranging information, both visually on the page and, and as you read it to yourself, makes things easier to understand. We all love lists. So I think it was actually part of the whole point of Listified was to say, here's a load of really interesting and amazing and fascinating things about the universe that young readers will love, but presented in the most digestible and engaging form possible. So in terms of the words, that meant we're going to have these lists that are very easy to read and straight to the point and short ones and long ones. And you can read the book in any order. and It's that kind of thing. You just dive into it. But also with the illustration and the design of the book, again, to make it really colourful and fun and engaging and accessible. Yeah, I think it was brilliant fun to do. I did it all in the first lockdown. And I think the result was to create this yeah, one-stop shop for kids. They could just dive in and within two pages, find something fascinating. We're going to have a look at the book together. We're starting with the title page, which has listified its vertical as an exclamation mark at the bottom. And it leads me into my first question, which is about the choice of font for a book. I think it's a really important decision. If you get it right, then the whole book comes together and it feels like the design and the illustration is part of that. So, yeah, we can spend a lot of time at the start working out the right balance, particularly the book I think here where it's nonfiction, where it's presenting information and it's a Britannica book. So we need a combination of authority and clarity also it's a children's book so it's going to be fun and engaging and that's partly as you say what the title listified like it's arranged on its side it's in these quite bold block capitals exclamation mark it's a silver reflective cover and the title's very big and bold along the spine so it, the whole point is it really stands out and grabs you hopefully you'll see it on the shelf oh wow what's that it's not immediately obvious that you would put it running down the page but it's such a long word that actually if you tried to run it across the page you'd really lose a lot of impact <laughs> it's true so it's partly necessity also lists the numbering runs down the size there's a verticality about lists but of course it's not the only font that's used is it I think the main text will be written in a different font. Do you think about things like having sans-serif fonts for children reading? Is the readability of it, is that part of your thinking? Yes, definitely. And that's really interesting, actually, the difference between serif and sans-serif and sans-serif fonts, is that people often think that having sans-serif is clearer, <laughs> and it can be. When you're thinking very young children or perhaps small text in a panel where you do need to make it 
simple. However, our brains really respond and find it easier to read the curves of a serif font. In terms of readability, it's interesting if you get those two sets of fonts, identical passages, and print them out side by side. And sometimes a serif font with a stronger weight is actually easier to read because I say the curves, the, the letters are more distinctive. And also it can get tiring to read a sans serif font over a long period of time. And it's fine if it's a really big, simple text. If it's a book for four or five-year-olds, then you want the letters to be very simple and clear. But mm-hmm. newspapers and a magazine, if you have a long read feature and it's in sans serif, it's exhausting. Try it, honestly. It's a fun experience. I'm, I'm on the contents page now, and this is an incredibly colourful book. But is there a danger in being too colourful? Do you place restrictions on what you will and won't use? That's a good question. I think always, actually, whether it's design or colour, clarity is the first thing. If people can't understand what they're seeing and make sense of it visually, they move away from it. And the reverse is true. If something just leaps out and, you know, whatever it is, an image or a spread with a headline, if it suddenly makes sense to you, it draws you in. I think, you know, you can have the danger, you say, if it's too colourful or too many clashing colours or the assembly of different elements is confusing. And, you, and the, other thing is, the other thing I think is hierarchy. And that's certainly a really huge thing in newspaper and magazine design. Where do you want the reader to look first? And every designer should be looking at the spread or the front page and saying, they're going to look here first and here and then here. And you've thought that reading experience. Whereas if you throw too many things onto the page and colours one of them, and the reader doesn't know quite, quite where to look or why, then yeah, their brain just naturally is slightly resistant to that. And they're more likely to turn the page and move on. So I think in all of them, it starts with, yes, you can use really bright, bold colours, but, you know, which ones and how, you know, and how are they going to fit together over the course of the book? What's your colour palette? On a page, you can have illustration and images, but you've got to think carefully about the hierarchy. Then obviously you can have some busy and exciting things and use a a combination of colours. As with the content page, there are lots of different colours on this spread, and yet you would feel the tones, they're all of the same palette. If they've been thought about, together and i think if you picked a whole different set of colors particularly the left hand page which is all a full page of illustration about different things that you'll find inside the book could feel a bit too busy and overwhelming all of these things are in your armory but it's got to be in the service of well, what are you trying to engage the reader with i'm just in the headings i've just been looking at those as we're talking and they're very engaging as well brainwaves to toenails tardigrades to super smart dogs yeah children like anyone appreciate and they notice the level of detail you go to so throughout all the lists as i was researching them there were often more facts and more amazing stories than i could fit in the lists or tangential things that i discovered along the way and so i was in discussion with natalie and katie are the two editors i work with on chris's team who made the book brilliant and they were saying look these are great we don't have space for this so why don't we it was their idea. It was a really good one. So on all many of the lists, there are footnotes at the bottom. So we have a whole series of asterisks. So it's all, oh, you know, here's something else that's not actually included in the main list, but is this really interesting aside or a little joke of mine? Or sometimes we have similar things where we say, oh, there's a connected list in another part of the book. Little tunnels, basically, to take you to other parts of the book. Mm-hmm. But all of this, like you're saying, is just like a sort of details and just trying to add in as much interest 
and engaging content in the book as possible. And young readers, like all readers, really appreciate that. They notice all of that care and love that you put in, even to the smallest bits. Thirdly, early on the book, this is a section on space. And I'm looking at a page called The Expanding Universe. Is this a photograph that I'm looking at? It's like an illustration. So what we're looking at is a visualisation of the Big Bang and what that might have looked like. There is a mix in the book of photograph and illustration. It must have been digitally created to get that effect, I'm guessing. But I'm interested to know what sorts of discussion you had around when to use photography. What does photography do well and what does illustration do well? That's a really good question. A brilliant Spanish artist called Andres Lozano did all of the spot art and the illustrations. There's amazing facts throughout the book, but they're also fun and quirky. And we've got some crazy lists and eccentric lists and funny lists. They're not all just about information. So the the illustrations are great to bring across that personality and that sense of humour. One of the facts was that a Tyrannosaurus Rex would be able to swallow 15,000 hamburgers in a single gulp. (laughs) So Andreas done a wonderful illustration of this t-rex with a huge plate with millions of hamburgers and he's got a napkin around his throat about to tuck in that's that personality and warmth and humor that an illustrator can bring out obviously where photography to answer your question the imagery comes in this is a good example it's the big bang although this is an artist's illustration of what the big bang might look like sometimes you need the precision of what does that look like for example one of the lists is five amazing rock formations that look like things like a camel and of course you just need photographs of that you want Mm. to see i need to see exactly what that looks like to make sense of what you're talking about i like that idea of having personality in the books coming in through illustration i think one of the things that i really appreciate in the books that are coming from what on earth and britannica is where there's a fantastic photograph give it its space too often you see them framed and small and you think if only that photograph were bigger there's so much to be seen in the detail of it i think that's true if you've gone to the trouble of finding and selecting a great image as you say that's the first step and then you need to make sure that it's as big and clear and bold as it needs to be and i think cropping is another part of that people often as well as not giving images their full due on the page they also crop in too tightly And so, again, they don't give the image room to breathe, including shots of people. And definitely in this book, there are lots of full page images. And as you say, if it's a great photo and you think it's worth that you paid your money for it to get it into the book, then you want to give readers a chance to properly, you know, enjoy it and engage with it. I'm scrolling through and I've just been wowed by another, I'm guessing, a digitally created image here. I think that's a photograph. We're looking at space dust and... Yeah, this is a, it's called a mission nebula. It's called Messier 8. So yeah, deep space. And so this is actually what it, amazing what it looks like. And this but, is a really good example of what we've been talking about, where you have devoted a whole page to that picture. It's just so easy. And you think with that age group to see even just the Milky Way, a proper picture of the Milky Way. It's extraordinary. We actually sit down and look at it. And obviously this age group as well, they've got that childlike wonder. They're discovering the universe for the first time. There's a great list later on about lightning, about all the different kinds of lightning, different lightning bolts. And that's got a great photograph of lightning. And lightning's amazing when you see it properly, and a great photograph reminds you of that. There are these amazing facts about how a bolt of lightning is five times hotter than the surface of the sun, and yet only as thin as your thumb. So a bolt of lightning is only two or three centimetres wide. 
But it really helps when you're reading those facts to then see a fantastic photograph of it because it, it just it, it dramatizes what you're reading. Something that we've already talked about. This page is literally bringing character to a book where you're talking about the different kinds of stars and the stages that they go through. Whether it's an average sized star or a red giant or a planetary nebula, they've all been given a characteristic of age and vitality, which brings the humour. So these two lists about the lifestyle stages of different types of star. But often it's the kind of thing that can be presented to children in a slightly textbooky way. It can just be a diagram and it's got the suns all look a bit the same. So yeah, Andreas did a great job here of, as you say, giving each sun a personality. The older sun with the red giant has a walking stick because it's near the end of its life. And it just, I think, yeah, I think it really helps communicate the idea of the different phases a sun goes through and its characteristics. And just from a child's point of view, you flip open this page and it feels, wow, this is fun. This is making me chuckle. And it's different from if it was a a textbook. Were there any of the lists in particular that presented a challenge to you as to how to present them? There are some human chapters. The final chapter is called Game Changers. And it's about people, extraordinary people throughout history in all different shapes and sizes. But of course, young readers won't have heard of necessarily those people. We might be introducing a lot of them, even though they might be famous to us, to them for the first time. So I think Andres does a really good job of picking the right people to illustrate using photography, trying to dramatise some of the scenes from the lists. So one of them, for example, is Incredible Journeys. So 12 people who went on epic adventures. This is people who walked all the way around the world or went to did intrepid things at the North Pole or the South Pole. But one of them is, you probably heard of Sasha Dench, who's a lady who was used to fly with swans and follow their migration patterns in this paraglider that had a motor behind it. And so that's across the whole spread. That's the illustration that Andreas picked. So like, wow, wonderful. Look at this lady flying with songs. Extraordinary. He picked the right person to bring to life for the illustration. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, it was the human chapters. Andreas did a brilliant job. So here's a great example. One of my favourite illustrations from the book. There's a list of unusual rules. So these are crazy laws that exist all around the world that are actually true. A lot of them are really funny. But the best one, which is the one that Andreas chose to illustrate, was that it's illegal in Arizona to allow a donkey to fall asleep in your bath after 7 p.m. And the reason this is illegal, and it is illegal to this day in Arizona, is because this actually happened in 1921. Someone allowed their donkey to fall asleep in the bath in a town called Kingman, and there was a flood, a river flooded nearby, and it flooded through the town, and it washed the donkey and the bath down the valley, and there was a mile and a half down the valley where eventually the donkey in the bath came to rest, and the townsfolk went off and they rescued it, and the donkey was fine. But the whole thing was such an ordeal to get the donkey back to the village. And they thought, what a faff this was. We're going to pass a law so that will never happen again. So a great, mad story that's also true. But the illustration is Andreas done a hilarious illustration of a kind of donkey lolling in a big bathtub, snoozing. And you just see that before you've read the list and think, I don't know why that donkey's having a nap in a bath, but I want to know. And that draws you into the list. So we've been talking page by page, look at the book. But at some point, you must come together to think about what this looks like in its entirety. And is there a consistency there? There probably is because you've set up certain rules to begin with, but it might be more to do with whether there are enough surprises and the pacing of it. Do you have to make adjustments at that point? Yes, that's another very good point. For each chapter, there are around 40 or 50 lists. So, you know, there's balancing in terms of length of lists. We need short, snappy lists on some pages. There are others that are written to where each entry is a little story or anecdote in itself. 
We needed pacing between funny, quirky lists and information-led ones. We needed ones based on illustration. We need some with imagery. And yeah, I think there was a balancing both within the chapters and then also between the chapters. It was easy, for example, to bring personality to the animals chapter and humour than it was to, say, the natural world. I suppose we were conscious of perhaps having to work a bit harder on some chapters to, so they had all the elements we wanted. But I think we got there. It was just a case of once you had a feeling for a chapter, you could just think, how do we replicate it across the others? I have to say that this is a project that I would have loved to have been working on in lockdown. It would have certainly kept me entertained as it obviously kept you entertained through that period. Have we got any other interesting books to look forward to in 2022? Yes, the thing we're working on at the moment is to do some infographics. I think that's another very interesting thing where people understand things visually first. You can explain something to to someone, including a child, visually. It's often a shortcut to their brain. And there are some children who words aren't always the quickest way to help them understand. There are some who that's their thing and others read books and devour information. But I think it's really interesting to really push those design values to create a book where a child just opens each page looks at a spread and just says, wow. And that whatever the insight or wow moment that you're trying to communicate, if they can just get that at a glance, which you can do with amazing illustration and great design, then they're learning in the most immediate way possible. So that's the kind of thing we're working on next. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining me in the Reading Corner. Oh, likewise, Nikki. It's been a pleasure. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.